Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Uh, it's on! Uh, we're on! Is it raining? I was just saying, just looking out the window, I got distracted by... Is it raining? Um, uh, I, I was like writing a thing about like uh, when um, you're at home... I wasn't writing a thing, I just heard an observation. When you're at home and you hear maybe like some rain at the window, you turn around like you're a detective in a TV show hearing a gun, a gun <laughs> cock. And then I wrote, um, so the way I wrote it was, uh, you know when you hear rain at the window and you uh, turn around, like, you know when you hear rain at the window and you turn around like uh, you're a detective in a TV show hearing a gun cock, gun cock. I've got a gun cock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really mainstream. Anyway, welcome to <laughs> Fan Club. My name's uh, Nick Helm, and you're listening to my fan club. And today I'm joined with... <laughs> today I'm joined by... Today. My special guest... Yes. And friend, uh, Nathaniel... <laughs> I can't Let believe it. You know what it is? It's the rain. The rain's put me off. You've been put off by the rain. And my gun cock. Um, so... <laughs> Hi, my name's Nick, and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. You're listening to Nick and... Nathaniel Metcalf's uh, fan club. club. Uh, first rule of fan club is... Tell your friends. Uh, tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club is... Please, for the love of God, for the love of Mike... For the help love of Peter, Paul, Mary and Ian. Friends. Yeah. Tell, tell your friends. Just tell, yeah. tell them all. Tell them all. Tell them all. Um, news just in: uh, Seth Rogen has got the rights to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Has he? I can imagine him doing something quite interesting with that. Like, um, I think, yeah. I mean, right. I don't. I don't. I, don't I, I literally interrupted your thought process to say I think, and then I didn't follow it up with anything. I just, all I achieved was stopping you from talking, so talk. I think he, I can imagine him doing something quite interesting with that. I imagine he's probably the right kind of age. He's a, I think he's a couple of years younger than me, which would put him in prime turtle power uh, position um, to do something good with it. I, I suspect it probably comes from a good place and he's not doing it to get a bit of uh, moolah. And he's probably, he's probably got good plans he could do quite a funny film and i think it's quite a funny franchise you know it's got like there's no reason why that wouldn't work as some sort of action comedy i think it is i think it is potentially a funny franchise i think it's really interesting i mm. think michael bay has done it and he's obviously the action guy so let's make let's make these action movies let's make these huge action movies and there is sort of comedy in it, but the comedy is sort of like maybe an aside. Mm. And I think with the cartoon series, there was comedy in the cartoon series, but it was sort of like lame kids cartoon comedy. Mm. And there was sort of like, they're, they're like, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja, although to me, I guess they'll always be hero turtles. Yeah. <laughs> I do love them. Um, if you were a turtle, which turtle would you have been? My favourite when I was a kid was always Raphael. Yeah. I don't know why. I think he's like, um, 
I think he's meant to be the one who's like, isn't he like the sort of silent killer? He's a sort of mysterious one, I think. He's the moody one. He's the petulant yeah. child. He yeah. just he goes off and he sulks a lot and he's sort of yeah angsty. Um, I was uh, Michelangelo. He was the Joker. Uh, he was the Joker in the pack. Was Michelangelo? He was the party dude. The party dude. I'd say we like pizza, but he liked it more than the others. Well, that's true. Raphael is cool but crude. Give me a break. And Michelangelo is a party dude. Yeah. Um, which uh, is fine when you're a teenager, but it gets slightly sadder as you approach middle age, it turns yeah. out. Also, Raphael was never particularly crude in the, um, in the cartoon series. He no. didn't do go, oh, that's a bit much. No. No, he didn't, like, come in and, like, wipe his ass on the curtains and then yeah. go, what are you going to fucking do about it, dick once? And yeah. then, like, Leonardo was like, oh, he's a bit crude. You know, there was nothing, nothing that pushed the boundaries. Like, no. that. So I think that probably Seth Rogen is going to really push that. I think it's interesting that you've got someone that's famous for comedy that's in charge of a franchise that hasn't really been ever particularly mined for comedy. Mm. And really, the thing is, it's about these four teenage... It's ridiculous. They're teenagers, and they're mutant turtles, and they're ninjas. And there should be an action element to that. Mm -hmm. But really, it's a ridiculous thing. And I think that maybe you could really focus on the fact that they're, you know, they're four teenage brothers that are hanging out eating pizza, and then occasionally they have to go out and save the day by doing ninja stuff. I think that... I don't understand why they've never made that film, <laughs> mm. really, because it's it's in the title of the film, and I don't feel like I've ever seen it. Mm. It's in the title of the of the of the franchise, and I don't really feel like I've ever seen that film. But um, uh, well, we were. I, I came to see it, didn't I? I came to went on my bike the other day to come and see it, and I think we were talking about Seth Rogen in the park, weren't we? I think he came up, um, and we talked about Seth Rogen and Danny McBride. Oh, and yeah. Danny McBride also, and David Allen Green, David Gordon Green, is it? David, David Gordon Green. David Gordon Green. Um, they both did Halloween and are currently redoing Halloween, and they seemed like quite odd people to take on that franchise. And this feels like almost less of a jump for them to have Seth Rogen do something like Turtles. I don't think it's that much of a jump. He, he basically, you know, he basically is a turtle. He is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. It's not much of a jump at all. Mm. Um, um, yeah, I think he's. Um, yeah, he's a good. He's a good choice. I think if he's in it, I don't know. But like, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think, why not? I mean, I didn't actually mind the Michael Bay Turtle films. Um, he didn't direct them, though, did he? I didn't. I didn't mind them. No, it felt to me, I never saw them. They, they always struck me as it's something where Michael Bay has had such a huge hit with Transformers, like worldwide, that he's probably got his production company to go, right, we need more of this stuff. So I've done Michael Bay's Transformers, get me another big 80s toy franchise. And they've handed in Turtles. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I would 
Yeah, I'd rather... Well, but the other thing that we were talking about... See, I'm not particularly excited about that because I think the Turtles have been sort of like done mm. so many times that you just sort of... It doesn't really feel like a coherent franchise where you can just follow it from beginning to end. It's like they're rebooting it. They've rebooted it more than Spider-Man, you know? Mm. And Spider-Man seems to just about hang together in terms of, well, that's that, that's that, and that's that. But I don't know what... I think also Turtles was very much like a time... Um, it had its time and its place for me where I used to be absolutely obsessed with it in the 80s and 90s. But by the time the second film came out, it was over for me. I wasn't even really... Into, I don't think I even saw the second film in the cinema. Mm. And then years later, I've kind of like acknowledged the fact that I really... Like, well, I'll tell you this. When we were making Loaded... Um, Oh, I've just knocked a bunch of stuff over. But when we were making Loaded, um, there was uh, me, uh, Johnny Sweet, uh, Sam and uh, Jim. And um, uh, and we all were, like, trying to work out what our characters were and how we interacted with each other. And sort of, like, Sam's character kind of, like, would... Loaded was about, like, four four sort of like tech guys that end up becoming overnight millionaires because they sell a, an app to a big corporation and uh, they, they make loads of money off of it. And a bit happens like overnight. And um, Sam played sort of like the moody one who would sort of like go off and try and prove himself. Um, and then Jim was sort of in charge and Johnny was sort of nerdy. And I was like this ex-stoner. And we were really trying to sort of like work out what our characters were. And then one day I was just like, we're the fucking turtles. And you go, we've like, they had the four characters. And it was just like, I'm Michelangelo. Uh, Johnny's Donatello. Uh, Sam was Raphael. And Jim was Leonardo. <laughs> Mary McCormack was Shredder. And Lolly was sort of like April O'Neil, and you go, oh my god, it's fucking, it's the, we've just, we've made the turtles, <laughs> and I thought that that was really funny. I'm sure the writers wouldn't have been that impressed, but like, um, no, but it's funny that it's actually, it must be, perhaps one of those kind of four archetypes of, uh, I guess like Three Musketeers as well, right? It's that similar kind of. Yeah, that's Three Musketeers is one of those four archetypes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> With D'Artagnan as well, isn't it? Yeah, I know, I know. I was just deliberately being sort of... I, was I know. I was deliberately being a prick about it for a comedic effect. It's fine, it's fine. But then the other news is that um, uh, they're talking about... Uh, Tim... Uh, uh, well, they're talking about trying to get Michael Keaton back to be uh, Batman, mm. which I think is probably the most exciting news uh uh, it made my it made my brain explode when I was like Michael Keaton, but they'll never do that. And in what context? And then they were like saying, not just Michael Keaton. Uh, it's not just a Michael Keaton cameo in um, a Flash movie. Uh, who's the guy that plays the Flash? Do you remember what his name was? I can't remember his name. I'm sure Natalie will sort it out. Um, gosh, no, what is he called? No, it's gone. Uh, no, absolutely gone. Uh, well, um, so, <laughs> poor, poor guy. 
I'm sure he's listening in, just absolutely devastated. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so it's kind of like, it's not just like a, it's not just like a micro. I've, I've got to also flag up the fact that I've had four hours sleep. I am absolutely exhausted. I was up last night working, and I had to get up early to do um, a DVD commentary um, uh, with uh, Oliver Harper, who was a guest on Fan Club last year. And I am just absolutely shattered. So I am, my brain isn't working very well today. I'm just apologising to you, Nathaniel, and to the listeners at home. And later I'll be apologising to our guest. <laughs> um, uh, so it's not just like this little cameo from Michael Keaton. It's, um, they're talking about getting Tim Burton back to, uh, to direct a standalone movie, which would be... Uh, Batman Beyond, where an old Bruce Wayne uh, takes what's the name of the character? Oh God, what is he called? No, it's it's in terribly today. It's not Tim Terry. Drake. Terry. 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 No, Grant Gustin is not the Flash. He he is, might, he's perhaps he's Flash on telly, is he? I think he's Flash on telly. We, it, it needs to be from like the the. Extended. Oh my god! This is just an. This episode is falling apart by the fucking second. It's Flash in the Justice League film. In the Justice That's League. Movie. I mean, I could just look it up on my phone. Oh, it's something like Eliza, Ezra, Ezra, Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller. That's his name. Um, what the fuck were we fucking talking about? This is a fucking car crash. What? Batman the f- Beyond and Batman Beyond. Batman, what's Beyond. Batman in Batman Beyond, Natalie. Maybe. Batman. Let's don't. She takes, it's too long, it takes too long. You just keep talking, I'm looking it up. Terry McGuinness. Terry McGuinness. Um, so Terry McGuinness, right? So, oh, what the fuck was I fucking even talking about? So Bruce Wayne is like Terry McGuinness's mentor in the future as an older Bruce Wayne. And they're set in, I guess, what was probably then, 2020 or something. But it like- now have to be 2040 or 20... Uh, although Michael Keaton is actually going to be heading that way anyway so they're probably maybe they would set them in the present or the very near future um yeah that's true but why you can't set you can't do batman beyond well you could do batman beyond if it was hmm if you have a sort of well if they bring tim burton back it's tim burton imagining the future from where he made Hmm. um Batman Returns and Batman. Yeah, Batman and Batman Returns. So it's like it's, it's not necessarily our future. Yeah, it's uh, it's the future as imagined by Tim Burton yeah. from 1989, which well, I just think is really fascinating. Which is like like a sort of 1989 <laughs> anyway, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, a lot of it's kind of Art Decoy and lots of kind of film noir elements. People are wearing trench coats and things, but they've also got um, like. Uh, modern walkie-talkies and helicopters and things. Yeah, you can't really, you can't really bring back Michael Keaton without the aesthetic that Tim Burton bought. Really, it's no. kind of like, it would be like this weird thing. You can't just sort of like put uh, Michael Keaton in a bat suit and uh, let him walk around in the same universe that Wonder Woman is in without acknowledging the Burton universe that he created. So. It's kind of really weird. And then because of the Tim Burton connection and the fact that um, uh, Johnny Depp 
is uh, in court at the moment and it looks quite positive in his direction. Um, they're looking at getting Johnny Depp to come in and play the Joker. And you just think, there's sort of like a mock-up online of um, Johnny Depp with Joker makeup on and it looks incredible. He looks like the closest thing to a Joker that, mm. that, that, that he looks as close to the comic book as a, a Joker as, as you've had. Yeah, I can imagine. That's what's really exciting. I just don't understand why they've never really got a comic book and done a faithful adaptation of, of, of Batman. It's kind of like everyone's gone, well, we all know what Batman is, so we'll just interpret it. And, you know, but no one's ever done like a direct transfer. Even the animated series, which is the best, mm. is kind of based around the world that Tim Burton sort of created. Yeah. But takes it in a different, takes it in a slightly more extreme direction and it's less sort of like you know um it's less gothic and more uh film noir but um yeah so there's never been kind of like this really faithful adaptation of batman i remember when the film mystery men came out i read a review of that i think it was kim newman former fan club guest right and he was pointing out that that it's funny now that they're doing a spoof in the kind of late 90s of like a super a superhero team when there hasn't that hasn't really existed in cinema yeah. so it's almost they're doing a spoof for a theatrical audience for something that only really exists in comics and that's why it's sort of difficult to take a foothold in people's consciousness because it's it doesn't really exist for people in the same way you could probably do that now like you could have mystery men now and people would be like sure i get it but at the time it didn't really work because it doesn't have a the audience is struggling to latch onto it. Yeah, but I also think that comic book movies don't actually take themselves that seriously anymore. Um, or, you know, the Marvel ones. And so there's a certain level of pastiche in yeah uh, in what they do anyway. I mean, what was that one with Brendan Fraser in that's on TV? Oh, Doom Patrol. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be quite sort of like, not necessarily tongue-in-cheek, but that seems to be kind of like um, acknowledging the fact that other superheroes exist it is you know so i think that mystery men kind of i don't know i think it's a flawed film isn't it mm. but i think it's there's a lot of very funny stuff in it i guess it's just ben still is great in it it feels um, slightly out of time now it, it does feel like a bit of a, a forgotten movie and i wonder if that was why really it sort of kind of came out and went away again didn't it it wasn't really what? stuck in people's consciousness. I remember I saw it at the cinema. I was at university. I saw it at the cinema. We went at, maybe we went on like a, almost a Saturday morning. Maybe it's like midday, 11 o'clock in the morning, like a matinee. Uh, watched it. We were the only people in the cinema. Maybe there's like two other people dotted around. And then we left and uh, it was, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought Ben Stiller was great. It was just before Ben Stiller was like a megastar. Maybe he'd done something about... Yeah, he'd done something about Mary because that came out when I was at school. But I don't think he'd kind of like to meet the parents at that point. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that came out the next year. Um, yeah, so he wasn't sort of a megastar at that point. Um, pre yeah, it, was, it was like It was like the perfect version of him being angry. He was called Mr Furious, right? So it was like the perfect combination of him kind of like... Um, 
getting angry and oh, he was he was he was just, he was really good. I tell you what though, I mean, uh, speaking of because what we normally do is we go over what we've seen this week. I saw Happy Gilmore again this week, mm. which has uh, Ben Stiller in a, in a small role. Ben Stiller's incredible in Happy Gilmore. Happy, uh, right, so this is the thing. I watched Happy Gilmore, and then, and, I've, and I watched Happy Gilmore quite regularly. Like, once every, maybe once a year, maybe once every couple of years, because I have, like, real nostalgia for it. I think Adam Sandler, it's a, it's a great Adam Sandler film. It's a really funny film. The jokes really work. And then the supporting cast is really good. You've got Christopher McDonald to Shooter McGavin, who's one of the best all-time screen villains. Um, it's, it's a funny film, and it's a really sweet film. Uh, one of the Adam Sandler films that I don't watch that often is The Wedding Singer. And I just remember The Wedding Singer being, like, really, really sweet. And then what was the other film I watched? Oh, Music and Lyrics. And I was just kind of like, right, well... Um, so you've got Music and Lyrics on that side. You've got Happy Gilmore on that side. And then a combination of the two is you've got, like, 80s music and Drew Barrymore and then Adam Sandler in The Wedding Singer. And I really enjoyed Happy Gilmore. I think that that's held up really well as a film. And I just remember that The Wedding Singer is the bigger hit. That was kind of like his breakthrough into mainstream. He, Happy Gilmore was sort of like, he took all of his Saturday Night Live fans and he took them to the cinema. And then Wedding Singer was kind of like, my, me and my family went to see that at the cinema when that came out. That's what really made him. Uh, and I watched it and that has fucking aged like a fucking piece of fucking Gorgonzola next to the radiator at Christmas. It's fucking, it's, it, it's fucking, mm, it's, I don't, I don't want to be like looking at old, I don't want to look at old films and be constantly going, well, that's problematic. And well, we can't say that anymore. Of course you can't. You know, I think the Gone with the Wind thing is kind of like this really confusing uh, debate where um, no one's asking anyone to, condone the behaviour of a film that was made 90 years ago. Oh, you know, condone the content of a film that was made 90 years ago um, and stand by it. But it's a document of the time and it's, a, and it's a film about the South during the Civil War. And so there's parts of it where you go, well, that's in the context of when it was made and what the film is about. You know, there are unpleasant things that are in there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't be looking at them. When you look at something like The Wedding Singer, there's just like, it's just mean. There's just like fat jokes and there's jokes about Alexis Arquette dressed up as Boy George and it's kind of, uh, there's a woman with sideburns in it and it's just kind of like, it's kind of like, it's, it's just like relentlessly picks. I, I watched a, a thing online and it was basically saying that there was a, there was, there was a time when Adam Sandler was the underdog when he was like lovable and he was like, he was like the freak, right? And then there was a crossover period when he start, he became like the bully. And you watch something like, and, and I'm, a, I'm a massive, like not even an apologist, I'm a massive Adam Sandler fan. But when you rewatch The Wedding Singer, it is kind of like, yikes. That's interesting. That's what I would quite like to see. I think about it a lot. 
I don't think I've seen it since it came out, but you're right. My memories of it is of quite a sweet film, quite a kind of good-natured kind of film. And I think it is, and I think it is sweet, and it was sweet if you were a certain demographic. But I think at the time, because I was really bullied at school about being overweight and all this other stuff, and um, uh, and when you watch it and he's making fun of fat people in it, I just remember that I was kind of like, at the cinema, I remember it kind of like, it didn't feel right to me at the time. But then you overlook it because the rest of the film is so sort of like, his heart is in the right place. And they're kind of making jokes. Uh, and, it, and it's sort of trying to make fun of everyone, but they're not really making fun of everyone. So I think, that, I don't want to say it's problematic, but there are sort of like some weird bits in it where out of the two, out of Happy Gilmore and The Wedding Singer, I would assume that The Wedding Singer is like a timeless classic. And it just feels like really dated. The other thing that really surprised me about it, in sort of a good way, but it's sort of a missed opportunity way, is that if you actually watch The Wedding Singer, like Steve Buscemi's performance in it is incredible. He's only got like this sort of extended cameo, but his uh, his performance in it is incredible. And it's like something out of an indie movie, yeah, where he he's not just sort of like on this is a cheapo Adam Sandler movie. I'm not really going to turn up for work today. Like like maybe he would have done in sort of like Grown Ups or some of the the later films when Steve Buscemi just pops up in sort of like random cameos here and there. He actually turns in like a really great performance. And then when you actually look at the rest of the film, Adam Sandler's doing the same thing. Adam Sandler's putting in an actual, quite nuanced performance. Um, and, you know, people go like, oh, it takes like um, a, a, a punch drunk love or uncut gems for you to really see that Adam Sandler can do He's good in, he's good in The Wedding Singer. He's like, he puts in a really good, and it feels like the team around him it feels like half of them were making one film and then the other half were making another film. Or maybe they lost confidence. And in the edit, they just put in all of these random cutaways of, like, overweight people eating wedding cake and stuff like that, just so that they could kind of, like... But the actual... If you... What was the film that we were talking about like that, that had... We were talking about this one film and then they kind of, like... They sort of, like, mess it up in the edit. I think we were talking about it, like, last year. Oh, uh, was it maybe the Ghostbusters film or something? That felt like something that was put together in... No, it wasn't that. But maybe I'm having deja vu. My brain is not working properly today. But but it was this thing where you watch it and then... Um, and the film is an indie... A very sweet indie comedy. And then they put on very broad... Um, like punchlines and endings to scenes that makes it feel like a more traditional Adam Sandler film. But if you actually look at the contents of the scenes and what's happening between them, there's yeah. actually kinds of like some really good performances in there. Yeah, like but, you say, it felt like a more, a kind of, uh, what of a better word, a more grown up Adam Sandler film. It felt like it was, it was trying to crossover, but it was a, not a crossover film for him and deliberately so, like it was trying to do one that was going to be for a wider audience than usual. Yeah, but it's still very much like Adam Sandler films have a certain tone to them. Like they 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 try and do one thing, but then they're incredibly broad. You know, it's the sort of thing. Like I think it's set in 1985, and the reason it's set in 1985 is it's bang right in the middle of the 80s. 
where they can use stuff from the later 80s and they can use stuff from the early 80s and it doesn't really matter because it's basically mid 80s um so they can do sort of like miami vice jokes and uh, but they're all superficial jokes you know there's just a guy walking in with his sort of like sleeves rolled up and he says he's a big miami vice fan and there's flock of seagulls haircuts and there's the delorean and she's dressed up as madonna and you know this kind of um uh not drew barrymore um uh, fucking, uh ben stiller's wife oh yeah oh, yeah christian taylor uh, and um, yeah, so it's kind of like they can reference all this stuff, and you kind of that's fairly bored. But the performances are all pretty good. It's just it was just weird. I just didn't assume that it would have kind of like I thought it'd still be fairly watchable, but it's actually quite a, mm. it's quite unpleasant in places. Doesn't surprise me overly just because it hasn't it isn't still around. Do you know what I mean? These things often have their own self-editing thing where it feels like. It feels like something that I was like, oh, I should watch that again. But the fact it's never on TV, it felt like, you know, it felt like quite a big movie on its release. But it never seems to have, like, lasted at all. It never seems to be around. No one talks about it anymore. It feels like it's naturally just gone away. I think it's a weird one because it's, um... I think Adam Sandler fans will always revert back to Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison as their favourites, I think. And then... Uh, post uh, Wedding Singer, people. Uh, I know a lot of women really like Big Daddy, which is the one where he like uh, is a man child that adopts a kid, um, and so that's sort of like a favourite. And also Fifty First Dates, I think, has probably aged a little bit better than The Wedding Singer, which was him and Drew Barrymore teaming up again. Mm. Um, that, that's sort of. But I don't really hear many people saying that they really love The Wedding Singer, which is kind of weird because it was a huge hit. Yeah, I think for me, I was kind of, I felt at that time, at the time of his kind of height, I felt I was always a bit too good for Adam Sandler. Like, these films are quite trashy. And The Wedding Singer was probably the first one I went to see. And it was later when I'd sort of see, I didn't see, like, Happy Gilmore, see it was on TV. And Big Daddy, I think, was another one I saw on TV and was, and just always struck by how good they were and how much I'd totally dismissed them. And I, I was like, like, I thought at that point they seemed like kind of quite cheap, quite trashy comedies and sort of overly broad. And I was a bit like, well, these aren't very, it was only when I watched them. That they, and, I think, Happy Gilmore especially, I think. Was that. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of Big Daddy, but I would say that um, uh, I really like Happy Gilmore. Um, and he also does a thing where he works with... Um, he, everyone's always sort of like he has, he always gets sort of like a really sort of like A-list, uh, beautiful female lead um, to play his like girlfriend or his partner. But he kind of like hires people like Drew Barrymore, who was coming off of stuff like Batman Forever. So she wasn't a real big star yeah, at the time. And also she was an 80s kid. She was like E.T. So it kind of like works with the film. Mm. It's kind of like he's doing this retro thing. But then he worked with Winona Ryder when she was going through all of those legal problems, and then he worked with Jennifer Aniston after the Brad Pitt split up, uh, break up, and it's kind of like he does this thing where, yeah, he does work with like these A-lister women. It's either because they need the work at that time, or it's because he's. I think it's because he's like he's pretty decent, and that he's kind of giving people like an opportunity. Like Winona Ryder, nobody wanted to work with her really when they made Mr. Deeds. 
and he kind of like gave her that. I think Mr. Deeds is because it's based on a um, Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. So is it Frank Capra? It's because it's based on a Frank Capra movie. When Adam Sandler went and did Mr. Deeds, people went absolute batshit crazy. It gets like one star in Empire and one star in the Radio Times whenever it's on TV. People absolutely hate Mr. Deeds. I think it's great. I think it's really... I don't think it's necessarily as good as Happy Gilmore. But um, it is... I think it's a... I think it's a really funny film. It's probably his funniest film. It's funnier. I think it's funnier than Big Daddy. It's definitely funnier than The Water Boy. It's definitely fucking funnier than Little, Little Nicky. And then when you watch all of his Netflix things, you kind of like go, well, fucking hell. Little Nicky's a fucking masterpiece compared to The Ridiculous Six. But, um, yeah, anyway, I think the thing is that The Wedding Singer doesn't really appeal to diehard um, Adam Sandler fans in the same way that the other films do and then I think in terms of people that really love romantic comedies it's in the mix but it probably doesn't stand up to other stuff which are maybe actual films that were made in the 80s you know like Pretty in Pink or Some Kind of Wonderful or Pretty Woman or um, when Harry met Sally, you know. So when you actually compare it to those films, those films are really kind of like they don't have all that gross-out humour that's sort of like um, hanging and on the underside of the movie. So it's so it's not just a pure sweet ro romantic comedy. It's kind of like all oh, this other stuff. Mm. I don't know. I just found it a little bit weird. Tell you what, guys. If anyone's watched Wedding Singer recently, write in and tell us what you think. Um, it's time now to go to a fucking song! <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we're back! We're back, we're back, we're back. Right, OK, I've got an energy kick. As I like to call it, another bite of noodles, but they're so spicy. I've got instant heartburn. So I've, I've sort of, I'm tired and now I'm deeply uncomfortable and my mouth is burning. And my chest yeah, is water. Okay. I've got water, but I'm just doing that thing where I'm just like gulping it down and now I feel like I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I'm just having an absolute fucking nightmare today, Nathaniel. Um, oh, God. I'm a... 25 minutes to get better before our guest comes. It's all falling apart. So, right. what have you been a fan of this week? Uh, what have I been a fan of? What have I been enjoying? Um, I, uh, I've been enjoying going out on the bike. Being, I've been gifted a bike by former fan clubber David Trent. I've got to say that that just doesn't count. That'd be like me saying, oh, I've really enjoyed the Ubers this week. I haven't. No, but I haven't. it isn't because it's more passive being in an Uber. Yeah, being on a bike is like. Um... I love that. First time as soon as as soon as lockdown's over, is is it over? Who knows? I'm gonna get a fucking Uber to Dundee. Do you know what I mean? I'm gonna. I just love them. I love them so much. I've missed them. Oh God, I miss an Uber. Oh, go on, tell us about your bike. I saw you on Sunday, didn't I? I saw you on Sunday. I came to visit you. We met halfway. Um, it was I went to the gardens opposite your house, 
That's and right. He and I, across and the I, road. I walked out of my building. As we say, it's a very windy building. It's like a labyrinth in there. It takes quite a while to get out of the actual building. So it is about halfway, I would say. Halfway. That park that, that's uh, that, that decommissioned children's play park that's uh, over the road from my uh, flat. <laughs> it is about halfway. Yeah. It was a nice idea. I was really looking forward to it. As it happened, I did it on a day where, like, as soon as I got there, it pissed down. Um, and then we're in the park, but I was just sat on a bike and we couldn't really sit down because it was wet or, or do anything. So we just stood up basically and talked to each other. And well, basically, the, the equivalent of a, of a, of a Nick and Nat's fan club that no one will ever hear. It was a really good one as well. I yeah. feel like that, us talking about Tim Burton and uh, Michael Keaton and Batman on Sunday when we did it the first time, it was really yeah. fresh then. Yeah. And it sort of like lacked the... It, it, I don't want to set a precedence where we're not allowed to hang out or see each other yeah. in between fan clubs. I don't want fan clubs to kind of like rule our social lives and dictate yeah. what we are allowed to do and say in our own personal private lives. But I think it is heading that way now, um, unfortunately. Uh, this this week's show has suffered from the fact that we met up on Sunday. We did meet up on Sunday, yeah. We haven't we haven't got that immediacy been able to do it. Well, what we need to talk about is very deep things in person and very trivial things on the radio. Yeah, all right, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Except that it often goes that way where we meet up with each other and go, have you seen this? Did you see this? Have you heard this? Well, that's all that happened, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in the end, yeah. I, asked, I did ask you about, like, your family. Um, yeah. And uh, you said that um, uh, your brother made a, was making a toasted cheese sandwich and then had a funny turn. And then you told me all about that. <laughs> but I really just wanted to know what was in the sandwich. Right. Oh, no, that was before, that was before, that was when he had the COVID at the start of lockdown, wasn't it? That was... Yeah. That's right. Well, I didn't want to go into the exact details yeah. in case you didn't want to go into the details. Right, but, yeah. um, you know, this is just something that we can work out in our, you know. It's, yeah. This is not for radio. No, no, this is something we can do. But you've been enjoying the bike that David Trent sent you. Yeah, no, I really have, though. I really have. I've been... Uh... You know, you've talked about that fucking bike for three weeks in a row, and I have come up with new facts and f- well, figures. You know what? I think the problem is... <laughs> the problem is, is that you go, I haven't really been watching things, which yeah. is normally what I do. I normally waste my life watching yeah, sure. films and things at home, and yet I've sort of got a thing that gets me out of the house. Yeah. Tell you what I do though. I think, oh, I've got that fucking two hours to talk about pop culture every week. I might, I, I better watch something. <laughs> you know what? Though? No, I was thinking. I was thinking before the show. I was thinking, yeah, I should do that. Actually, I've got more things to talk about. It's been on a bike. Uh, no, it's good being on a bike. Though. It's good being on a bloody bike. That's what I say. <laughs> well done. Well done. You know, bikes are like elephants, aren't they? They never forget. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what they say. I'm sure I was a fan of something that was non... I had... Oh, fucking... Oh, fucking... Right, so you ain't seen... You ain't seen... Right, so tell us about your bike. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what is good, actually. I'll tell you what I did the other day. I went up to M&S on my, uh, uh, on my bike. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to the M&S in Stratford-Westfield. And, you know, I won't sit, there's lots of people going into your TK Maxx's there. And I went, oh, that, that looks busy. That looks a bit horrendous. Don't really want to get involved in all the big crowds. So I went to the M&S food bit to get a bag full of shopping. And I noticed that straight opposite the M&S, there is a Double H Miss. And there's not a lot of people going into Double H Miss. So I pop into Double H Miss, have a look around. Double H Miss, Stratford Westfield have still got mini eggs and uh, Cadbury's cream eggs. Got a pack of mini eggs with me now. 50p. Mini eggs. Nah. Hmm? I'm going to fucking kill you. I can't believe that. Fucking Carl Reiner died this week. He did. <laughs> um, people, people that are younger than what thirty? No, probably. Well, when did Blockbuster close? Yeah, I reckon. Oh, yeah, it could be early two thousands, right? Yeah. Oh well, no, because I yeah I around then because I. We still went to Blockbuster when we were at university, I think. But, like, in the 80s, like, going into the video shop, I mean, we had... Well, I'll tell you this story. I'll tell, tell you this story. We had mixed video that was at Whitecroft in St Albans. Uh, I think it's a curry... I think it's a curry... Um, an, an Indian takeaway now. But uh, mixed video used to be kind of, like, in between sort of a super... Like a... Mm like an off-licence and um, a fish and chip shop, which was also a Chinese restaurant. And so, like, Friday nights, you'd kind of, like, go down to the... Like, video shops were amazing. They were just absolutely... They were, like, a thing of absolute joy and wonder. And I do sort of feel sorry for people that are just growing up scrolling through Netflix. Because a video shop would be something like you'd go there, there'd be a limited choice, but not that limited, and they would have all sorts of fucking films that you'd never even heard of. And um, and the artwork was really incredible and everything, and the scary stuff would be at the top that, so you couldn't reach it. Or there'd be a horror section, which I'd never go into, because it was really small as well. It was like a horseshoe shape, where you'd go in, and there was an aisle... There was, there was like a, sh- a set of shelves in the middle of the room, and the counter at the end, and you go up to the counter, and then there'd be the second half um, of the shop, and the horror section was down there. Or there's like an adult section. I'd never go down there because I was sort of like six or seven. And you just, I just spent hours looking at looking at these videos. And I remember there was a poster for Naked Gun, or there was like a cardboard cutout for Naked Gun in the in the window. And I sort of put together that. The guy on the poster for Naked Gun was the same guy as the guy on the poster for The Man With Two Brains. Even though, obviously, they weren't. And we'd sort of, like, you'd, you'd be able to rent stuff out. And, and I, I love Steve Martin. One of my... And I love Steve Martin, I think, because there were so many Steve Martin films out in the 80s that every week you'd go in there and you'd just pick up a new Steve Martin uh, film... And because you were young, you know, you'd, you'd, 
it was, they were all good, you know. You'd get like three amigos out and you'd watch it on the Friday and then you'd watch it again on the Saturday. And I think maybe you were allowed to rent them out for the weekend. It wasn't just overnight. And so you'd watch it one more time on the Sunday and then you'd take it back and then you'd tell your friends about it on the Monday. Uh, and I just remember that Carl Reiner, he made, obviously he made um, The Jerk with Steve Martin and then he made The Man With Two Brains and then they made Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and All Of Me. Those are like the... The four big ones. I was never such a huge fan of All of Me, although I saw it again at the cinema recently and I do think it is good. But The Jerk, The Jerk doesn't feel like a complete film, but it sort of tails off a bit in the second half, but it's got so many outstandingly funny moments in it. And Bernadette, Bernadette Peters is absolutely just gorgeous. And the, um, the song um, Tonight You Belong To Me is, is incredible. Um, and Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid is maybe my favourite film that they made together, which is just the most technically difficult, where they splice black and white footage of Steve Martin into old films like The Maltese Falcon, and he gets to act with people like Vincent Price and James Stewart from all these old films. And, uh, yeah, I just... Uh, Carl Reiner uh, was uh, 98 when he died, so it's kind of like... He was, he was very old. And he was really sort of like political right up to the end. He was anti-Trump. There's a really beautiful picture of um, Carl Reiner uh, with his daughter and Mel Brooks. And they're all wearing Black Lives Matters t-shirts and uh, all like laughing together. And, um, and it, I just think he was a great guy. And also he was Rob Reiner's dad. And Rob Reiner is obviously, I think, maybe one of the most important or greatest film directors of the 1980s. Mm. Um, like on a par with someone like Spielberg, I would say Rob Reiner's output was consistently good. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, so anyway, just sort of like just giving a shout out to Carl Reiner, really, because um, I think Carl Reiner was one of the first directors I knew, weirdly as well, from those films. Like it was that I would think of them as Steve Martin, Carl Reiner films. I think when I was little, I think I almost assumed Carl Reiner might be like a pseudonym for Steve Martin because sure, I yeah. just associated them so much together and Carl Reiner was this name but I didn't know any of his sort of history at that point it was like Carl Reiner makes Steve Martin films <laughs> how could you how, how could, but like it's just one of those things about the video shop was like this really important place to me where I didn't have loads of friends to play around with at the weekend and I was new to St Albans so <clears throat> so it wasn't kind of like uh, I didn't have all these friends that I'd grown up with through school and the video shop I was just always happy when I was in there and yeah I discovered all of these uh, my whole taste in films and my obsession with films and uh, my taste in comedy it all sort of like stems from either my parents um, or to the video shop where you kind of like develop your own tastes mm. and through that you know you'd get I mean it was a great time to be growing up because it was sort of like you'd have stuff like like I say Three Amigos but then you'd have stuff like Spaceballs and you'd have kind of um, more like the trashy stuff like License to Drive and um, uh, Teen Wolf and you know they're all kind of like these amazing films that sort of like shape, shape your life when you're growing up and they basically work better in a video shop than they do in a cinema. Yeah. They have, like, on the back of magazines at the time, I guess, like, Sunday magazines, they would probably be, like, free with the papers, there would always be these adverts of just, like, 
you just have the little video boxes and they would be like sort of um it would be like all the arnie movies all in a row and it would be like all the steve martin movies all in a row and it did feel like they were all part of something it felt like they they felt less at the time like individual movies and more like a collection yeah like you buy your arnie movies and you buy the steve martin movies which were also all everything um um, at that point, all those films on the back are also Carl Reiner movies, and I guess Carl Reiner is to Steve Martin, in my mind, what someone like Hal Roach is to Lauren Hardy. It's the name above those films that make you go, Carl Reiner. I mean, and I guess it's stuff like I guess he also had that slightly second wind, didn't he, with the Ocean's Eleven movie, and they kind of brought him back, didn't they, to sort of a more sort of mass audience again, and introduced him as this sort of comic figure in those movies yeah, yeah he's such a huge presence isn't he and i think i i think for for us i mean even more so in the states i think with those kind of um the stuff he did with mel brooks yeah um mary tyler moore show and dick van dyke show and all that kind of stuff but i mean if if all he ever did with those steve martin movies it's enough you know i mean it's um yeah it's huge absolute absolute legend in um shaping who i am and um yeah i just think yeah him and him and rob reiner really but um yeah anyway it's just it's it it's sad to but he you know it's sad on the level that he's not around anymore because i think he was actually a really great person um but also i'm just very grateful that he made those films and uh they they got me through uh they got me through a lot of the eighties. So, and I still watch them now. I watched the jerk the other week and the man with two brains, I think improves over time really. So, um, yeah, good. So I get well, the ending to that story about the fucking video shoppers though. We went into mix video shop every week and, uh, like to the point where I'd rent out army of darkness every week and then he'd let me, uh, He'd let me get it, even though it was a 15 and I was 12, because um, he knew that my mum knew that I'd already seen it anyway. There was no point in not letting me have it, because I'd definitely seen it, you know. And uh, just used to go to the video show all the time. Then Blockbuster opened, and then Mix didn't really have the selection. So we sort of like had Blockbuster as a backup, but we'd always make sure that we went to Mix. But then Mix sort of like fell behind on all of the selection that he got. And then it eventually you just like go, well, Blockbuster, they also sell sweets. And then it was just like this thing you can, you could actually, I felt so guilty about it at the time, but there was this crossover period between using like the local video shop and then actually just slowly drifting over to the big corporation. And it was like a dirty secret where you'd go into mix every so often, but you knew he didn't really have the selection anymore. And one day my dad was in charge of um, taking the video back and, um, I think basically he delivered a uh, mix video to Blockbuster and Blockbuster had to phone up mix video and say, Oh, this has been delivered. And he had to phone us up. And then after that, he knew, he knew that we betrayed him. And I, could never, and I could never look him in the eye ever again. I felt so ashamed. Uh, which was actually the instigation for us to go to Blockbuster. But it's great, they had video games as well. Uh, they had all sorts. 
So it all yeah. worked out in the end. <clears throat> it all worked out in the end. I don't know what happened to Mick, but it's an Indian restaurant now, so it's great. Um, no, I always felt I always felt terrible about that, really. But um, it's it, you know you'd go to get a copy of The Rock out, and he wouldn't have it. But they'd have twenty copies of Blockbuster, and that's basically how Blockbuster did it, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, anyway, so I feel awful about that still to this very day but it's time for fan mail now isn't it so so we're all right okay so so play the play the play the music maestro uh are you playing it yeah it's playing it um i feel terrible now hello you lovely boys oh hang on it's too much water oh my god i got such bad heartburn hello you lovely boys I heard last week that Johnny Vegas took a shit in a can of Pringles. Lol. If I can ask, what is the weirdest loo situation that you've ever experienced? Thanks, Clara. Um, um, the weirdest loo situation I've ever That's been. That's an old question. Uh, weirdest loo situation. Are they basically ask us where's the weirdest place you've had a shit? Um... I, I, I mean, I think I'm lucky and I can't think of any uh, terrifying stories. I think I'd... Uh, uh... I have no strange, unusual to- toilet stories. Yeah. Sorry to say. I did once, um, I did once, because for, 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 I was ill, I had to give a stool sample in at my doctor's and you give it in a little tube, you know, so you've got to kind of, like, shit in a tiny tube and take... That along to the doctor. You're not making the shit in the tube. Well, you meant to, I guess, put a bit of shit into the tube. Yeah, you're not meant to. It's impossible to actually. I mean, no, no, you can't. I mean, I mean, I've, that's I, like going I, from one I, tube I, to another. I did a stand-up show about this. You're not meant to shit in the tube. No, I, mean, I guess that would be like putting toothpaste into another toothpaste. It, it comes with a little chisel that you're meant to. Scoop it out with, yeah. It's very much like a Hagen dazs kind of um, shot. It's like, a, it's like a cinema ice cream. <laughs> it's, yeah, fuck it. Oh, yeah. Anyway, go on. And then I had to take it from my. It's not a. It's probably a five ten minute walk to the doctor's. I had to take it along to the doctor's. And as you're going along, you think one 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 of the horrible things about it is, of course, that when you put the stopper on, but the shit itself is warm. So your tube kind of steams up, for one. And then you're sort of walking along, and you realise you're walking along and you've got shit in your pocket. It's in a tube. You walk along with shit in your pocket. And I kept thinking, God, imagine if I get mugged now. That's what I kept thinking. This would be the great time to get mugged and (laughs) to go. But I think I'd be like, no, you can't have it. Because I'd be almost too ashamed to go. I've got I've got shit in my pocket. You'd have to what? You'd you'd get stabbed. Yeah, because wouldn't want to show a mugger that I've got like a Hagen dazs um, serving of um, shit in my pocket in a tube, in a plastic tube. Well, I hope you're happy with that, Clara. <laughs> Dear Mister Helmer, Mister Becker, what? Who wants to? Who wants to know about other people's toilet stories? As if I've got like any to hand that I can. 
I've basically got the exact same story as Nathaniel, except for when I was delivering it, the woman behind the counter at the doctor's went, oh, you're an uncle. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, no. (laughs) No, of all the time, (laughs) all the times to be recognised. Mr. Helm and Mr. Metcalf, have you ever eaten cheese? I never have, but it seems popular as I'm pondering whether I should give it a little thought, please. Thank you in advance, Mr. T. Start with cheese strings, they're fucking delicious. You were talking about cheese strings the other day, you just started, haven't you? You've not had them before. I had a fucking cheese string and they're fucking absolutely... You've been wasting your life, haven't you? Absolutely wasting... I don't know what I've been doing all my life. Cheese strings are absolutely fucking incredible. They're like fish sticks, only with cheese. They're absolutely fucking... Delicious. Nick Helm, I am five foot nine. I heard what you said regarding people my height. Well, I'll have you know, you are absolutely correct. We are all cunts, man, the biggest of them all. Thanks, Mr. Cunt. I told you, if you're five foot nine and you're listening to this, um, you better pray you're five foot eight or five foot ten, because if you're five foot nine, it's official. You are a cunt. That's not just me saying that. That's also confirmed by Mr. Cunt who wrote in this week. You've just, you've just heard the message. Hello, you crazy carrots! I would like to set up a YouTube channel and become one of those influencers because that seems to be where the money is these days. Do you have any thoughts what my USP could be? I like balloons, tissues, slightly smelly feet and Tom Hardy. Thanks, John. Well, Tom, I think that's an adventure and a journey that every, every YouTuber has to go on their own. Uh, trial and error, that's the way forward. Uh, AKA, I don't want to engage with you. Long time listener, first time caller, slash emailer. Hi, Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf, love the show. It helps me get to sleep at night. That's a bit I don't know how I feel about that. A bit of a neck. Uh, however, recently, what with this hot weather and all I find myself getting to. Oh, what, with this hot weather and all, I find myself getting to the end of an episode and still being awake. This got me thinking. What is your favourite weather-based movie, Groundhog Day? Mine is Twister. I love a bit of Bill Paxton, or is that Bill Pumas? I always get the two mixed up, as you do. I don't. It just so happens that Twister is also my favourite Matt-based party game, an iced treat. Heck, I kind of lost my train of thought, but keen to know both. I mean, I'm... It's Groundhog Day. Heck, I kind of lost my train of thought, but keen to know both your opinions. I value them dearly. Jeff. P.S. I told my friend about your show. Not sure if he's listened to it, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Is it Jeff or Chris? I don't know. That's weird. He's got two surnames. What's your favourite weather-based film? What's your favourite weather-based film, Nat? Um, what is it? What's your favourite weather-based film? Mine's Groundhog Day. What's yours? Uh, I like the film Night of the Big Heat. Oh, fuck off. As if you've ever seen that. <laughs> hey, hey, Nick. Uh, it's either Groundhog Day or Die Hard with a Vengeance. It's so hot in that movie. Um, hey, hey, Nick, in that, I must say I'm a huge fan of Disney films. Do you like Disney films as well? I recently rewatched The Emperor's New Groove. Great movie. I absolutely loved it. What are your thoughts on it? Cheers, Clem. <laughs> Just don't talk about films when you meet. What? That's, there's something's gone wrong there. Um, yeah, Empress New Groove is really great. I do like Disney films. 
I would say my favourite Disney film is probably uh, Sleeping Beauty, uh, which I think is stylistically incredible. And I also think that uh, my other one would be, I don't know, Beauty and the Beast, but I watched it once and I didn't like it as much as I used to, so maybe I've got the song watching that. But I really like Emperor's New Groove, I think it's great. Pinocchio, I think, but I do also really recommend Emperor's New Groove. David Spade being excellent, and yes, I really do love. Um, oh God, but yeah, I think Pinocchio is great. Uh, that's probably my favourite of that era. Uh, but also, Sleeping Beauty is. Oh God, what a movie! It's just beautiful, just beautiful to look at. It's got this really cool artistic style to it. Yeah, here you go. Um, anyway, I hope you have a lovely day, Clem. Uh, goodbye. Right, our guest is waiting, so it's time to play oh, a song. Yeah. I'm going to have a wee, and then we're going to talk to our guest. I'll have a wee too. Oh, well, hopefully something hilarious will happen and we can tell uh, whatever that cunt was called about it. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. Is Nick and the helm, and this is still Nathaniel Metcalf. And now we are joined uh, in uh, Camp COVID by um, uh, our best friend <laughs> and soon to be yours, Mr. Harry Hill. <laughs> now, applause. Uh, 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 you get it on, uh, yeah, you get it on Steve Wright. It did feel like like we should have put some applause in there, but we we might do it in post. Oh, it's the big in post. Um, How are you both? It's good. Um, I mean, we're not not keeping up with the zoo radio atmosphere of Steve Wright in the afternoon. Does he he still have a posse, Steve Wright, or does he have one one man now? He has a remote posse. Okay. Yeah. He he has... um, Well, I I actually haven't been in for a while. Uh, But... um, yeah, I do listen in. Yeah, the socially distanced posse. Yeah, yeah, they, they're, they are... Uh, <coughs> well, we all have to uh, take precautions now, of course, with this um, global pandemic. What are we talking about? Steve Wright, we're just wondering, he's got, he tends to have a posse of people that cheer him in the studio. Well, actually, what it is, it's, a, it's actually a, uh, you know, it's on a tape. They don't okay. even... They don't even when you when they in normal times when they're sitting there. So I've forgotten his name. Um, anyway, and Grace, Janie Grace, Janie Lee Grace, Jerry's <laughs> first wife. Um, she, he says he does this run through. Oh, we got uh, Harry Hill in the studio, and he presses the button, and, and there's applause. Oh, but they don't. Uh, they don't even move. They sure. just sit there like that. Uh, well, really, what you've got to do, Harry, is get over the fact that you're not on Steve Wright's show and you're on a different show. And we do things differently around here. Yeah, so I noticed. You've just got to change gear in your head and then just yeah. kind of like uh, and, and yeah. lie back and, uh, and enjoy it. Hello, Harry. How are you? Hi, Nick. I'm very well. Yeah, it's great to be on um, <laughs> what? our radio. What's it? Fubar. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Furby. Not Furby Radio. Furby Radio. <laughs> um, what, have you been, what have you been up to? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm 
you know, I'm sharing. Well, should I do that? I did this, I've done this joke before on um, the last leg. You know, I'm sharing with Chris Whitty, yeah. the chief science officer. Okay. Can we do that again? Chris. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> I'm sharing with Chris Whitty. I see. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Don't go out, wash your hands. I think those jokes have sort of... I think those jokes have been past it now, Harry. Do you think, Chris? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. I've got this new one, actually. You know, I have a sort of collection of ventriloquist dummies. So this is radio, so... Um, yeah. Oh, OK, yeah. So that was the ventriloquist doll that you just brought up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very... I should have... Perhaps I'm the wrong guest for this show. I'm very visually minded. I mean, you um, are quite visual, and yes. I got, um, you know, my old producer friend, Alan Thorpe, Nick. Sure, yes. He sent me his, his family ventriloquist dummy, uh, which is a little boy in a flat cap, and I repainted him. <laughs> Who's that meant to be? I thought it could be Chris's wife. Oh, Chris, you're... you're you left a mess in the bathroom again. You know, the, I thought it'd be funny that if Chris, Chris Whitty had like in a really sort of aggressive northern wife that we never see. Sure, but then, but but if, if but you you will see her now because you've made her. That she's what? You've well, you've made her, so yeah, you will you will get to see her now. Yeah. Um. So. So. It's, they do look like they belong to the same family of ventriloquist puppets. Yeah, yeah. They've got a very similar facial similarity. They look more like relations. Yeah. They look like they could be brother and sister. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I think there is a certain... Oh, common, no, yeah, you're right. You're I think right. there's a, a, a common uh, look to uh, events. Uh, I don't... I mean, it's joking aside... Uh, you know, um, ventriloquists are having the toughest time of all um, people in this pandemic because, A, they have to keep two metres apart. From, <laughs> and, B, they have to wear a mask. So, <laughs> this could be... It's going to be the end. Oh, you're right. Could be the end of ventriloquism. I think, actually, that, uh, that actually means that anyone could be a ventriloquist now. If you're, if you're wearing masks. Yeah, well, exactly. You know. If, any, if everyone can do it, then where's the skill? Yeah. That's yeah. the real... Yeah, thanks, Harry, for coming on and shining a light on the true victims of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's the ventriloquists out there. Um, maybe so your should... grown as well in, in lockdown. What's that? Your hair's grown in lockdown. Yeah, the hair's grown back. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real, it's a real drag. Actually. It's almost like it's a similar style to Stevie Wonder's. He's got a similar yeah. hair, 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 haircut. Or um, who else looks a bit like that? Um, Terry Nutkins, I guess, would have had a similar. It's actually Max Wall. Of course, Max Wall. Yeah. Now I tell you what it is. I bought this. I got the. I sent off for this. Like wig, and um, 
because I'm doing this, I've been working, I had been working, prior to this thing, I had been working on a new thing, a, a caveman act. <laughs> so this is my caveman wig. And, I, and where I've, the first, I only did it twice, and the first night it came off, so I put a chin strap. <laughs> but did you buy the wig? Or did yeah. you make the wig? I bought the wig, yeah. And they make it so that, what, it just falls off? Or are you meant to glue it onto your head? I think you're not supposed to sort of throw yourself around in quite the way that I was. That was required to get the necessary laughs. Okay. And is that a live thing that you're doing on stage? In the the been, yeah, so that's, that is my... That was the thing I was looking forward to doing this year, <clears throat> particularly. And what happened was I did one... Basically, the idea of it is... Um, so I'm a, a caveman. Right? Have we talked about this before? I think we have, haven't we? I think you've talk, told me about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell your listeners. So I had this idea that if I could do a show that was um, silent, and not silent, but no words, no spoken words, right? So uh, I thought I could do it, or I could get someone to, to do it, and it could open, because there were no words in it, it could open in every major city in the world, Moscow, uh, Helsinki, Beijing... Um, Paris, other ones. Sure. Um, and it would be hugely lucrative. Uh, and so I wrote this thing. They'd be playing simultaneously all around the world. New York, uh, Colombo. Um, and... Uh, well, you'd franchise it out. Well, I wasn't going to be in it. Right, okay. Right. So I took it, so I wrote this thing, I took it round to um, various West End producers and they just sort of read it. It doesn't read like anything because there's no words. It's like, you know, caveman walks on, caveman sees a bird, tries to eat the bird, <laughs> you know, and they, they're just looking at it like, well, you know, what's this? They, they said, you've got to be in it. To sell any tickets, you'd have to be in it. Which has annoyed you, right? So I thought, oh, all right. <laughs> so I, um, so I thought, yeah, all right. So then I started to get into it, and I got your friend Paul F. Taylor. Yeah. Well, my friend too. Our oh, friend. do you know what? I think I think Paul F. Taylor's told me about this rather than you. Yeah. What did he say? He says he loves it. Uh, he played it. So he played a dinosaur. So I did basically, and I got Holly Byrne. You know the brilliant Holly Byrne. Yeah, Holly Burns incredible. To play a cave woman. I mean, the, the, the thing I've got planned is a big show. You know, it involves some, you know, f uh, flying in and big props and all kinds of stuff. But basically, I did like a cut-down 40-minute version at the Battersea Arts Centre. We re kind of rehearsed it for a week. There's loads of music and sound effects, and so it's not silent. And... Um, they said, oh, well, you know, you can let some people in to watch it on the first. You know, if you want to, you could get that people in. It was in that little, like a, I think they call it the library. Right. It's just like a square room. And uh, so we did that, right? And it, it sort of advertises Harry Hill, caveman. And then we're about, I don't know, it was full, but it's like, I mean, obviously it was full. It was about 40... Uh, <laughs> no, obviously. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's it was, sure. It's about forty people, 
And it starts with, I've got this cardboard rock that I made, right? And it start, the lights go down and I, and I uh, appear from behind the rock in that wig. I have like a painted beard, you know, like a, a monobrow and a caveman fur dress, you know. Loincloth thing. Well, I'm more, it, yeah, that, that sort of, with a club. And uh, they're just looking at me. And obviously, I'm not speaking. They're just looking at me like, what is this? And when's it going to stop? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, for the first 10 minutes. You would think like, that when you've got your period of grace, right? Your first 10 minutes would be where everyone's excited to see you. It's a yeah. small room. Yeah. To Harry Hill's caveman. Yeah. You've come out. And yeah. so far, I'd say it's their fault. You've delivered an old promise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and um, you know, it was that situation where you're trying, you know, basically you're in the, I'm in the caveman outfit. There's no way out. I've got to see it. You know, it's, I've got to go all the way to the end. It's not like with new material where you can think, right, that joke didn't work. I'll put an old one in to bring them back round. And uh, so I'm right there, you know, I'm kind of 55 years old. <laughs> You know, it's like half past five in the afternoon. And I got this, just like a cold sweat dripping down my, down my back, thinking, what the hell are you doing? Um, but they sort of came round. All I'd say is there were a few bits I thought, yeah, there's some hope here. And obviously when it's over, you have this huge relief that it's over. That you forget the, the sort of the difficult bits. So I went away, rewrote it. And um, we did it at the, uh, we, so we had five nights booked in, so like a, a month later, six weeks later, uh, uh, in Surbiton. You know those Math Brown gigs? Yeah. Uh, and we did the first one on the Friday, right? And it was... Can I just ask, is it you, Paul, and Holly that are all turning up together to do this show? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. And what's so it called? I come on, I'm coming as a caveman. It's just called I Am Caveman. And moment. when was this this year? This is, well, it was, the, it was the Friday before they closed all the... Um, oh, right. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... And the, the, these, the Math Brown gigs, they're again, they're like, what, sort of 50-seaters, aren't they? In, in Yeah, that was, it was that little theatre in Surbiton. So actually, and it was... Uh, Anyway, it couldn't have gone better than... It couldn't have gone better, right? Right. So it was really, really exciting. All three of us came off thinking, great, you know, we've got, uh, we've got another one on Monday. And then, and then we were due to do Finchley uh, Arts Depot on the Thursday, which is like 350 or something, you know. So it was like, oh, great, this is going to... And you know what it's like when you're a bit, you've got a bit of confidence and the whole thing starts to really... It's the kind of fun bit, but... Um, I've heard people talk about that sort of stuff, yeah. But I tell you, <laughs> I've never, never heard it firsthand, but yeah, yeah. Um, and then, we, of course, we, we couldn't do it. So it's, just, <laughs> it's, an odd, it's an odd sensation. I did video it, fortunately. But what happens now? Do you, get to, do, you, do you have any clue? Do you just get to do it in the autumn? Do you then... Well, it won't be the autumn, will it? I think it's... I guess, yes, of course. Yeah, you know, the problem is, as soon as the... Well, 
problem, if you like, but the great thing problem is as soon as the lockdown, as soon as they open the theatres, you, you can be sure that every single two-bit comic in Britain is going to be on tour. <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> no one's earned any money. No, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of like um, when lockdown first started, it was kind of, um, well, Nick, we're going to have to reschedule your tour. And it's just like, that's great. But everyone that was on tour is rescheduling their tours. And so then there was sort of like, you have to fight to get theatre space in the first place when you're booking a tour. And then you had to refight to do it because everyone was basically trying to... Um, uh, trying to reschedule it for as soon after lockdown might finish as possible. Um, you know, it might be that you'd have to delay your tour by like four months or six months. I'm delaying mine by a year. I think it's going to be a year probably, isn't it? Well, it's not going to be this year. We're not going to be back touring again. Uh, we're not going to be back gigging again this year. It doesn't no. So now what I'm thinking is I might... Uh, I've written it up as a little film... Yeah, so, but I'd have to get you know. I'd have, it's quite a big thing, isn't it? Organising all that. So uh, uh, you know. But isn't the joy of it to be performing it live? Well, because I think two things. things. I think there's two ways. I think yes, absolutely. That's the idea. That's the whole point of it is to do it live, and it's a lot of audience participation. And as soon as you start filming stuff and getting other people involved, then it becomes more and more complicated. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you do you have those problems? Because I find. Isn't, you don't have to record any sound with it. That's all the only. I know, but I'm 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 talking more about like other people kind of uh, putting their opinions into it because uh, I because I don't know if you find it at your at your uh, stage in your career, but every time you want to get anything made, there's sort of like a series of hoops that you need to jump through in order to get it, and then it sort of like dilutes the original idea. So doing something live is kind of like the purest form yeah. of doing it yeah well this is the weird th this is the sort of i mean actually you've chosen a good day to talk to me but i mean not a good day a bad day because you know, i've been working on this tv this clip show for the bbc and, that, and so far they've been good as gold but i i just got all these notes through uh, on this on one particular episode i just like i think i feel like crying <laughs> i feel like crying just because you the, the point you make, right, and you're absolutely right, the, the fantastic thing about stand-up, live performance or whatever, is you're, you don't answer to anyone. You say what you like, you do what you like, you know, you turn up, you don't, you know, in, in some situations you don't even have a, a, a bag with you. It's just you and your voice. Yeah. Right? You could just drive across there, walk in, and you're off. And that is what the TV people uh, liked about you. Right? Yeah. When they first saw you, oh, love this, love his voice, love the voice of uh, Nick Helm. We love the whole package. We don't have to do anything. We love the whole package, and then and then they think, uh, but maybe I could improve it. <laughs> 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 you know. That's the problem. That is the that is the problem. Uh, you know, and I think it's it's a big problem. And actually, it never bothered me before. In that I never used to get any notes. It's only since I got the hang of it that people started to wade in. 
Is that success? Is that is the higher you go up the ladder, the more hands are involved in it? I think actually uh, it's uh, it's been a change in the in the uh, people who are in charge. Mm-hmm. In many, I th- I think that I think that's right. You may you may be right. Maybe uh, I think you know it may be that expectations are different and, and all the rest of it. But I, my feeling is that. That the people giving the notes are a different type of person. So, what it used to be, or I used, what I found in the past was that people would, would just leave you alone, and if it didn't work, you'd just get cancelled, mm. right? Which I think we can all live with. I think that's fair as well. It's that almost like it fair. doesn't work, or it doesn't. It works for that audience, or it doesn't. It works yeah. for the audience at ten thirty p.m., or it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, um, but now it's, uh, and I think those people were, they weren't, I don't know, they weren't, uh, I don't know where these people, have, the, the people in charge now have come from. I think they're kind of career, um, you know, TV executives, you know, they've always slightly got their eye on the next project. You know, one of the things we've heard of that, and um, and so they're trying to manage their uh, career as much as the show. Yeah, no one takes a risk. Everyone's so risk averse. I think that there is sort of like that element where you are and you are a factor into the decision making, but you're not the. the can I t- can I tell you a story about when I was making heavy entertainment? Yeah, please. When we did the um, we did. Th- I did um, a radio pilot at Christmas in 2013, and uh, or Christmas 2012, which basically off the radio pilot, they gave me a pilot, a TV pilot for Heavy Entertainment, which was sort of like a light entertainment thing, is what they wanted. They wanted my, they wanted my stand-up show on, yeah. on stage, yeah. on, 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 uh, on TV, right? They wanted my stand-up act on TV. So it was like a light entertainment sort of vehicle. I did the series, I did, I did the pilot, and... Um, it was what it was, but we had like three weeks to do it. Uh, and there was some good stuff in it and some stuff that I just thought, there's no way that would stretch to a series, but we'll work it out. And then they offered me the series and I went in and we were working with this um, this executive. And, um, and we'd sort of like been working on this thing for three months where we'd been writing stuff and I'd kind of like was developing the series. It's this light entertainment series. Every episode is going to be about a different theme. And they were like saying, yeah, it's really good, Nick. It'd be really good if you had some sort of like, um, like some sort of structure or some sort of um, uh, something that gives like a backbone to the whole series. And I started saying, oh, right, okay. Well, I think that each scene is sort of, each episode is sort of self-contained. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of like play a game in one of the episodes, don't you? And I said, yeah. And they said, it'd be great if you played the game in every episode. And I was just like, well, I don't think we should play the game in every episode, but I certainly think that if you played it in one episode, it would stand out. And they said, yeah, yeah, okay. And I said, but if you wanted me to put some sort of like, um, I think the reason why the game episode works is because it's so different from all the others. And they were like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. And then they come back a bit, like a, like a week later, and they're like saying, now, yeah, I really think that it needs sort of like this element, that, that game that you're doing, you know, that, that game that you do, I think there's a real, really something about that. And I'm just like, going, well, I don't really understand well, why you keep bringing up the game? And they go, no, no, it's, all right. it's up to you, you know. You can do, yeah. But I just think having some sort of like game show kind of element, and I'm not saying, whoa, 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 you're like saying game show now, like it's a natural. 
this is a light entertainment stuff thing that we've been spending three months writing. And then we have another meeting like two weeks later, and they're like going, yeah, this game show thing that this is going on. And I'm not going, hell, mate. Anyway, that guy went for a promotion, and then he left the project because he didn't get the promotion. And we get a new guy that's in charge, and he's like going, so I think that we need to look at this sort of game element. And I said, whoa, 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 what's this game element? And he goes, look, no one's saying, no one's saying game show, right? No one's saying game show. No one's saying game show. And I'm sort of like saying, look, I'm not saying game show. And if you're not saying game show, then why is everyone saying game show all the time, right? We've done a pilot that isn't a game show. We've got like this series. And it turned out that basically they were trying to sort of like turn this light entertainment show into a game show. Game show. And it was kind of like, and then what? It turned out that someone at top of BBC wanted a game show. And they were like, well, we've got this project right here. We could change this into a game show. And my whole thought about it was, if you want a game show, just ask me for a game show and I'll write a game show. But oh. this, is a, this is a light entertainment show. This is a different thing. That's kind of like a square peg in a round hole, you know? And it turned out that um, I think uh, Joe Lysett did a pilot for the game show that they did in the end. And um, it didn't get commissioned. And then he went off the idea of having a game show. And then they just let us make the series. But it was just like this thing where it wasn't anything to do with our show. It was this oh. thing that was floating around that someone wanted a game show. So they just tried to turn projects that weren't game shows into game shows. Yeah. I haven't had that experience. I don't know if anyone else has. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it, the thing with, I think what you have to remember about TV is it is a bit of a game. Not a game show, but it's a bit of a game. And you have to, you sort of have to be prepared to give them a, a little bit and allow a little bit of you to die each time. Yes, absolutely. But I do also think that it's important. That that yeah, go on. I just think it's important that everyone knows what show they're making when they start. Because if, if, they, if, anyone, if someone wants a game show and you go into a meeting and they say, Nick, we're looking for a game show then you can go away and you can go game show got you i'll come up with a game yeah. show but you can't go in and say oh, i've developed this light entertainment series with music and dancing and singers and uh, and stand up and stories and you know and then they go yeah but can you make it into a game show but not but not even tell you they want a game show sort of try and sort of like use a jedi mind trick on you to yeah. really get you to convert into and just just say what you want and we'll do it. I think that a big part of it is made to make them think that they're getting what they want. But they could get what they want. I mean, when I did uh, like the first few series of TV Burp, every series they would say to me, uh, "We're going to cancel it." At the start of each series, and there's no exaggeration. My then uh, keepers, Avalon, would say to me, they don't like it, they're going to cancel it, which is really good for morale. <laughs> All right? And, and so one of the ideas, I had to go into this meeting uh, with IT. One of the things they kept saying was, the first of the first years, they kept saying, no one knows who he is. Me, right? Mm. Can I uh, just, when was the first series? Uh, 2001 or 2000 and around that time. And when did your Channel 4 series finish? 
Oh, about a year. I think it was about a year when I was sort of um, out of work. That's when I wrote my first book. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, yeah, it was about a year. And then, how many series of TB Burke did you make eventually? Uh, Eleven. So that's thirteen, you... maybe thirteen. I, I yeah, I mean, it was eleven. It was ten or eleven years. Um, yeah, but but the anyway, but the first one, they say yeah, no one knows who he is. Can we? Can he go on other shows so people know who he is? Right. Uh, then then they said, um, can he get celebrities on? <clears throat> what we need is to see some celebrities on. Maybe we could cut to you know maybe Lorraine Kelly or someone could do a line. You know, so it would go to Lorraine Kane. She'd say, oh, Harry, I noticed uh, this week on East End is that, you know, uh, Barbara Windsor's handbag looks like a face, right? So I, I just, I said, yeah, okay, yeah, we can do that. So we would do this and we would film these things. Uh, I think a couple of them did go out where they would say, oh, hi, Harry. I'd say, we'd get to Lorraine Kelly and she'd be in the street and she'd say, oh, hi, Harry. I don't know if you noticed that... Um, you know, Barbara Windsor Zambo looks like a face this week. But of course, they would kill the joke. You know, they couldn't deliver it. And also, it was completely at odds with um, the whole sort of idea, because the whole sort of feel of that show was me, you know, being anti. Yeah, anti celebrity. Yeah. But so we just quietly, you know, after that, we did it a couple of times and then quietly dropped it, and no one. Raised it, right? And then the uh, have I told you this? Then then the, the the final one was they said you've got to go in for a meeting with the um, head of ITV, who was Simon this guy uh, Simon Shapps at the time. He doesn't like the name TV Burke, right? So this is like four or five series in, right? He wants us to change the name, right? So. And by then, I'm just sick of it. I'm, wanna, I'm quite happy to just say, all right, forget it. So we go in. As I say to, I say to my um, manager, I said, well, what are we going to say? You know, we can't change the name. We'll lose the few fans that we've got. I mean, we're not going to win anymore because it would be exactly the same show. And he says, I've got an idea. He says, don't worry, I've got an idea. He says, well, if he says uh, he doesn't like the name TV, but we've got to change it, what I'll say is, how about Harry Hill's TV Burke. And I said, I thought it was already called that. And he goes, is it? I don't know. Anyway, so we go in. And this Simon shouts, he says, um, so I don't like the name. And I said, I said, yeah, well, I, I said, you know, where's this come from? Have you done some sort of market research? He says, well, what it was, I said to uh, my PA, do you watch that uh, TV Burton? She said, no, I don't like the name. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, so, you know. And at this point, the manager chipped in, how about if we change the name to Harry Hill's TV Burt? And he goes, no. He says, I'll tell you what we we'll do. He said, we'll do some market research. If it comes back that people don't like the name, you'll change it. If they do like the name, you can keep it, right? Cut to, so I didn't hear anything. 
cut to the uh, comedy awards, sort of six months later or three months later, where I am picking up the award for the best something, entertainment show or something, and I'm seated next to um, Simon Shapps. I pick up the award, I, I go and sit back down next to him. He goes, oh, well done. I say, oh, by the way, what, what happened about the uh, market research? He said, well, we did the market research, and, um, yeah, no one likes the name. <laughs> but, you know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at that point. Doesn't matter now. <laughs> that is what we're up against. But that's like five series of that. That's crazy. It feels yeah. like there's a lot where... That market research costs money. You know, the money yeah. it costs to, make, to do that market research. God knows how much it costs, but, you know, it's... Yeah. It feels like you see, like, from, like, comedians of mine and Nick's vintage as well, it felt like... I think I've said this before on here, but it always feels like often they're taking a live show or something that was very uh, big in Edinburgh or something and has a real sort of... Uh, its own identity. And then they sort of... It filters through something and ends up on TV and not being the thing that they wanted in the first place. And it just always feels like, but that's not... Or, or they want to get people that have seen Edinburgh in a very kind of idiosyncratic show that they've made themselves. And yeah, they go, yeah. I'll tell you what, how, would you like to be in a thing I've made? And it's, it, it sort of completely takes away what's unique about those performers. And I always think it's such a shame. And that feels like it's something new or something that seems to have happened in the last sort of maybe 10 or 15 years. And it feels like... The, the comedy shows that I would have watched in the kind of late 80s and 90s felt that they were more idiosyncratic and each one, what was nice about it was they were all different and had they, their own identities. And they're all funny, but they're completely different shows. You know what I mean? It's just, you can look at... Yeah, I think that... Um, I mean, it's true that you can't just take a stage show and put it on TV, or you, rarely can you do that. So what you have to do is find a way of doing your thing in a, in a way that you're not doing, because no one can keep up that sort of turnover of stand-up. You know, you do need to find a way of doing it, so whatever that might be. Um, but uh, there are, and there are some really good uh, commissioners and, and con you know, channel controllers, actually. You know, there are, there are some really good ones, and I've worked with some really good ones. But, um, you know, it's, the whole thing has changed. Because, in, I mean, even when I started, the budgets were, were being cut. You know, there was no... I mean, the Channel 4 show, we used to rehearse for a week. And the guy who... Uh, the, the director of it, who had directed the two Ronnies, he was, he was like an elderly, you know, old guy, who also um, produced Top of the Pops. Uh, he, uh, he was sort of moaning about us only having a week's rehearsal. But then... No one rehearses at all now. So when you did, so you won the Perrier for best newcomer in nineteen ninety two, and then uh, two, yeah, was it ninety two? Yeah, yeah. So when, um, so what was that show like? That wasn't a um, an award prior to that. What happened was that um, I did when I was a doctor. <clears throat> I used to do the medical school reviews and uh, which is where these sort of you know Christmas yeah and so then my little friend Matt 
he became the uh, head of the drama society and he got control of the uh, funds, the money, the checkbook. Right. And so basically he'd, I would write these shows. This is a different thing to the reviews. I would write these shows and he would write the checks out. We, you know, we'd put these shows on. And then, and, and then the, um, the last year at medical school, or after we all qualified, uh, uh, I wrote this show like a sort of stupid play. Uh, and we took it up to Edinburgh, right? And we, I, we'd never, I'd never even been to Edinburgh, right? Never been to the festival. Mm. So the first time I went was with this um, terrible play. And we'd only, we'd only done it once at the medical school, right? And, the, <laughs> and the, um, we did it at the Theatre West End. Do you know that theatre on... on um, it's, it's a church, you know, that big church on um, Princess Street. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it was a long, it was a long, narrow, was, I know this is a very circuitous answer to your question. It was a, a long, narrow room, right? So it was like three deep in front of you, but then it went, you know, that way. Yeah, it was wide. And because we didn't know what we were doing, and because we had this money from the, you know, Review Society... Uh, we we got this guy up to with a with a spotlight, right? So we put the spotlight over there. But the problem was on the first night, someone would walk down this end, and the spotlight would follow them, and it would blind the <laughs> it would blind the entire audience. And there was this segment of it, uh, sort of three or four minutes, where the lights go out, and you just hear the voices. Right, you just hear the actors' voices talking about it was it was about an operation and I don't know. Anyways, so the lights go out the first night, the night the lights go out and we hear seats being uh, you know, shuffled about and doors <laughs> <laughs> and when the lights come back up, it's like half the people <laughs> Right? But the what I'm getting to is that I knew from that how to, to uh, sort of knew the, the kind of ropes of how to promote a show, right? So the, the first 20 minute uh, act I ever did, you know, the first 20 minutes I ever got paid for, I was on the bill with um, Alistair McGowan, who I'd never met before, in this place up in uh, Clapham. And he goes, and we got on really well. And I said to him on that night, I said, we should go to Edinburgh together, right? So, so the first year I went up, I did as a stand-up. I, I did a two-hander with him, sharing the hour, right? And the second, uh, the, the second year was um, with this show, uh, Flies. There's the poster on the wall there. Oh, no, you can't see it because it's. <laughs> I'm in my Sylvanian house. Um, <laughs> And what that was, was it's the usual thing. You've got, like, 40 minutes of material padded out with slides. And my, my mate Matt, at that point, had, had uh, qualified. We were both qualified. I'd given up my job, but he uh, was still um, working as a doctor. And he said, I'll only do it if you let me sing this uh, song that he'd written about this girl that he fancied called Kath. Right? <laughs> right? And the song was... 
Uh, oh, Kath, I want to call out your name. I want you to feel the same way too. I want to fall in love with you. I mean, you know, I had no place in the <laughs> in the show whatsoever, but I agree. And, um, and for the first, we only did a week, I think. I think we only did a week, or was it two weeks? Anyway. We did, we, uh, it, it, it opened, I had this trunk, which I would hide in. So, so the first uh, week of it, for the sake of argument, or the first, you know, first amount of, of doing it, no one much came. So there'd be like, there'd probably be 10, 14 people, most of whom I would recognise because they handed them a leaflet. You know, Dutch people, you know, foreign tourists. And um, what would happen is I would... It, uh, when the time came, I'd get into the trunk on the stage, right? Matt would go and take the tickets. They would come in and sit down. The, the, uh, he'd give me a, I don't know what, the, the signal must have been the, the music changing or, right? And then I would jump out of the box singing a song, right? And, uh, what happened was that William Cook from The Guardian, the, the kind of comedy, he's like the first comedy correspondent. You know, there's no such thing as people just covering comedy. He yeah. sort of self-starred himself, this comedy correspondent. He wrote a review saying, uh, okay, and the opening line of it was, I've seen the future of modern comedy and its name is Harry Hill, you know, the, like the Bruce Springsteen. Right. Like this fantastic review in The Guardian. Okay, so that day, Fantastic, you know, we were like really thrilled. I get the review, I take the leaflets and I get the review printed up on the back of the leaflet. That night, we, you know, I go to the venues, bar past seven, we get in the trunk, right? Normally, I'd be because they were, normally there'd be like 10, 12 people, I'd be in the trunk for a couple of minutes. That night, I'm in the trunk and I'm in the trunk and I'm in the trunk and I'm hot and sweaty, right? And I'm thinking, what the hell's happened? Something's happened, you know, there's been a bomb scare or something. And uh, music goes up, I jump out of the box, right? Uh, because I've been in it so long, I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and once my eyes become sort of accustomed to the bright lights, I realise it's absolutely packed, full of people. Uh, and then, uh, and then, you know, the, there was this Perrier Award. It was like the Perrier Award thing. And uh, they said to me, someone said to me, oh, you've got to, you need to go to the Perrier Award. Really? Why? You know, because I wasn't nominated for the Perrier Award. I forgot who was there yet. Maybe it was Frank Skinner and um, Steve Cook. I don't know who it was. Um, so I go along. And then they just announce it before the main award. They say it's going to be a special award, best newcomer, Harry Hill. Yeah, it was just fantastic. And and the, the weird thing was that that night, the night of the Perrier Award, had been the last night of the show. So I got the award, and everyone's saying, "Who is this guy? Well, I want to see the show," and they couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Often that still happens now. There's always like they announce the winner, and you've maybe got like two more shows left. Yeah, yeah. Think, like, why don't they do it earlier? Earlier on, you can just 
There was a lot to be said for it because then it became a sort of, you know, like I was Zorro. <laughs> you can't see it. But then the following year, of course, I went back and I did a, uh, it was a better show actually because, you know, but I got a terrible time. So at that point, so you you weren't on the sort of comedy circuit at that point at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was, yeah. yeah. Oh, you were? You were? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was out every night gigging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Absolutely but, loved it. But did you... Did and you so much work. What, you know, in those days, back in those days, there was so much work, and, and it was all cash. <clears throat> like, you, you know, it's, it was just fantastic. I mean, it wasn't you, tough to get into, but once you got on, you'd be, you know, two weekends, it'd always be, you know, two gigs on the Friday, two or three, cash. How many comedians were there back then? I don't know. There were loads. But, like, it feels like there was... Mm, you knew like everyone. You did know everyone. Yeah. It was a different thing. I tell you, it was a lot different. I mean, it, I think the whole thing's changed since I started going to comedy. So when I was a student, I used to go and see comedy, and I used to follow people like Jack D, and I used to like, you know, we've talked about this before, Jack D and uh, Arthur Smith and uh, Joe Brown, people, those, that, those old kind of guys. And in those days, the whole thing was so much more uh, amateurish and uh, uh, shambolic. Every, every night, someone would die really, really badly, like... You know, there'd be someone on that was, you know, there'd be a poet doing sort of heartfelt poetry and there'd be a, you know, some terrible juggler or, you know, it was, it was a lot more varied. Right. And then, uh, and then it be, it started to become a bit more, people got better at it or, you know, it, it, I don't know about you, but perhaps I, I haven't seen anyone really struggle or die for a long Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah. That's because... Um, Not you. At Always Be Comedy, there's a mirror at the back of the room where you can see yourself on stage. <laughs> but, um, Do you think the audiences were more accepting then, though, or not at all? Do you think they had lower happened? expectations. They had right. lower expectations. Definitely. <laughs> That's what I wonder now. It feels almost that there's a that there is an expectation of going out, and you have to. It, there's almost a much. I don't know if I'm if I'm right in saying this, but almost like there is a, a sense of you are really on the bill with the best out there. So you are you do have to perform, and it feels like sometimes when I hear about people talking about gigs from the sort of '90s era, you kind of get the impression that the people there were perhaps they were more accepting of different types of comedy, whereas I sometimes wonder if audiences now, because they're so used to seeing a very slick version out on TV, that that's what they expect to see. They expect to see a, a TV-level stand-up. Yeah, show. I mean, even, I don't know, I mean, all the clubs are different. So, I mean, like, Jonglers was always tough, and, you know, it was that audience. But, I mean, at the Comedy Store, I always would get booked at the Comedy Store uh, and usually had a really good time, you know, it, uh, and I'm not an obvious um, comedy store act, you know. Um, I don't know. So it's easy to get sort of, you know, nostalgic about it. I don't know how many, in the answer to your question, I don't know how many comics there were around at that time, but... Um, but um, 
but you kind of knew everyone. You didn't know everyone, I think. But so I first got into you to your uh, uh, Channel Four series, and what I really thought was amazing about you transitioning over to ITV with TV Burke was that you didn't really, aside from the format, you didn't change your act in any way to go from Channel Four series to being like one of the biggest comedians in the country. And um, I thought that that was always sort of something that was really sort of um, inspirational where you... Well, I don't think you have any choice. I don't think you have any choice as a comedian. You know, you... you uh, this is what... When people say, you know, people are very opinionated, very, because it's very uh, subjective. You know, they, they are very... Uh, they say, oh, that's... You know, I don't like him, he's not funny. Or why don't you do some, you know... I mean, believe me, there, were, there have been many, many times where I've thought, if only I had a couple of knob jokes to get me out of this. Sure. But I, think, I don't think you have any choice about the sort of humour you do, and I think that goes for, you know... It's not, it's not about necessarily being... me being what you might call... absurdist or, you know, or surreal or whatever those words that people bandy about. You know, as someone who's like a straight down the line observational comic like uh, Michael McAdoo doesn't have any choice about what he says. So, you know, you, you you might not like it, you might not, or you might love it, but I don't think he's thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to change, I'm going to change my act to make it more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, but the but the thing that I, you I adapt, you have to adapt it, and I did adapt it. Significantly, actually, Nick. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But, I but think the sensibility was the same. The sensibility was. Yeah. You're still, you're still recognizably Harry Hill from Channel 4 and Harry Hill on ITV. And it's kind of like. The, but you got into a position where the audience found you. You went from like being a cult comedian. Yeah, but that, that was. A huge the, comedian. Yeah. Well, the, the, what helped me with that was. It was that it gave, because I was doing stuff about the week's TV, which was very familiar to ITV audiences, it gave them a way in. Yeah. Um, we've, got to, we've got to wrap up. Um, Christ for so that. So we've got to play a fucking, we've got to play a game with you now, Harry. So I'm going to pass you over to Nathaniel. A game show. It's a game show. This is a game show. This go better or worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my own opinion. So you have to predict what I would like. Beginning with Ben Fogel. Ben Fogel. Is Benny Hill better or worse than Ben Fogel? Better. 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 Is Jonah Hill better or worse than Benny Hill? Worse. Probably is worse, all told. Um, <laughs> Joan Collins, better or worse than Jonah Hill? Better. Worse. Worse, I'd say. I think worse. I think worse. Yeah. Vinnie Jones, better or worse than Joan Collins? Uh, worse. Worse. Catherine Zeta-Jones, better or worse than Vinnie Jones? Better. Worse. Better. I think probably better. Oh. Tom Jones, better or worse than Catherine Zeta-Jones? Better. 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 Tommy Lee Jones, better or worse than Tom Jones? Worse. Who's t- is he the guy from uh, Men in Black? That's the one. Yeah, worse, yeah. Worse. 
Jamie Lee Curtis better or worse than Tommy Lee Jones? Um, better. It's very close to it, I think. What do you think, Harry? Better. Maybe better, yeah. I don't know, yeah, better. It is better, yeah. Christopher the Lee. Of, uh, Tony Curtis, isn't she? Yes. Christopher Lee, better or worse than Jamie Lee Curtis? Better. 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 Well, yeah, I, I met Christopher Lee. Once. Oh, yeah? yeah? Yeah. Spike Lee, better or worse than Christopher Lee? Worse. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he is worse. I'll get you in trouble. Yeah, nice. I got, I got ten out of ten. I got ten out of ten. I absolutely. Was that? that. Was that you nine? Got, you got nine out of ten, Harry. So you are up there with uh, Luke Morley. Uh, you're better than Susie Ten, and you're also better than Henry Normal and Johnny Vegas with seven. Thank you for coming on, Harry Hill. It's been lovely to talk to you. See you next week, guys. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.